Church, let me lead us right now into prayer as we come before God and then hear his word and then get into that together. Father, thank you for the privilege of being your people gathered, and even though we are not in the same place gathered through technology to still hear your voice. That is what we desperately need to hear this morning. We have already told you in our words and with our music how great you are to us. And Father, as we turn our attention to your message for us in the book of Colossians, so much of the emphasis there is precisely on that, how great you are to us, and and the prayer that you would become even more great to us. And so right now, Father, I pray that for myself, for everybody tuning into this stream. God, that as a result of having experienced your word, your preached word, having prayed, having sung together, as a result of having been a part of what we're doing this morning, God, would you make your beauty more evident to us? Would you make your infinite worth the most beautiful thing in our minds? And that leads to a whole host of changes in our life that you are seeking to reveal to us through Scripture. And so, God, I pray for every man and woman who is listening to this right now. Father God, asking that you would meet us where we're at and touch us in a special way. God, as this coronavirus isolation continues to move on, as we become increasingly weary, as we become hopeful in hearing news about slowly coming out of it, we have questions, we have sometimes frustrations and discouragements. God, for every one of us, this time of isolation has brought up issues within our own character that perhaps we know we need to face or perhaps we don't want to face. God, wherever we are this morning, I pray that you would give us the heart to bring all of that to you. To recognize that you are, you are God. You are surprised by none of it anyway. So it simply doesn't do to, to try to avoid it or, or not face it or worry about how you will respond to us. You know it all and you have been gracious with us to send your son to die on the cross for our sins. I pray that that would impact our experience right now. God, as we bring our discouragements, our frustrations, our weaknesses, perhaps our anger and anxiety, God, whatever we're feeling, we bring that to you, and I pray that you would help us to hear your voice as you speak to us, and that you would change us to make us a more open people, a more hospitable people, a more uh, Jesus-minded people. For those who are in desperate need of of purpose, I pray that you would clarify the purpose that you have given us and, and help us to see and live that even now in a time of isolation. I pray that that your purposes for this particular congregation and every one of us who are members of it would become clear to us even this morning and as we continue to move through this time of coming out of this coronavirus. God, would you help us to see how to love you, serve you, love other people, serve other people for the glory of your kingdom and the good of your church. God, work that in our midst right now. Give us eyes to see and behold wondrous things in your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to read the passage of Scripture from the book of Colossians that we are going to be looking at this morning. Uh, Just letting God's word uninterrupted be read to us. And then we're going to back up and we're going to see what God has for us in this. So if you're with us, I encourage you to grab a Bible. And we're in Colossians chapter 1 this morning, starting in verse 25. Or sorry, 24. And then we're going to go down to chapter 2, verse 3. This is God's word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lack is body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for all those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is God's word for us today. As we move through a, a study in a book like Colossians at any time, the, the question is always, what is, what is God's message for us? This is a, a letter that, that God spoke to a first century church in the city of Colossae through the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago and half a world away, and yet this is God's timeless truth, not just to them, but to all of his followers throughout all time. There's a message in this book that God is trying to convey to each of us that we take and apply and live in our world and in our day, whether it's pandemic isolation or any other context. There is a, a vision for following God in this book that shapes how we respond today. And that's what I hope we continue to see as we move through this book of Colossians. Uh, reading a book like this in, in the Bible is a lot like uh, buttoning a shirt because you either button from the top down or you do it wrong. So whichever way you do it, uh, you know, you start, if you've ever buttoned a shirt and you get the first button wrong and you don't notice it and then you go to the next one, it's fine. The next one's fine. Like you're, you're doing fine all the way down until you get to the bottom, right? And then you realize, wait a minute, <laughs> this didn't work out. If I miss the first button, I'm going to miss the whole thing. And reading a book of the Bible is a lot like that. Uh, this book of Colossians started with the Apostle Paul kind of just commending this church. He hadn't met them, he had never seen them, but he's heard about them. He says, man, you guys are doing a great job, and he introduces uh, what he's going to talk about, and then he prays for them. We saw that a couple Sundays ago, just a powerful prayer for their success in following Jesus in their world and in their context. And that kind of, with that sort of introductory stuff out of the way, he now spends the rest of the book saying, all right, now I'm going I'm to teach you how to do that. I'm going to teach you what I just prayed that you would understand, that you would understand God's purposes for you and that you guys would be living them out in your context and in your generation. And so he follows a, a very sort of calculated, intentional, specific flow of thought from step one all the way to the end. And we began that journey just this past Sunday when Jordan opened up for us Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 down to 23. And there the Apostle Paul starts with, it's kind of like the first buttonhole of the message that he's going to share. We've got to understand Jesus and the supremacy of Jesus to see him and, and soak in that reality well because everything that he says after that sort of flows from that. It's an application of that. It's referencing back to that. And so if we kind of miss that first Jesus buttonhole, so to speak, we can go through the rest of the book of Colossians and see lots of good life lessons and think we're understanding it, but ultimately we're going to get to the end of the book and realize we missed the point. Because if we read a book like Colossians, really any book of the Bible, but certainly this one, apart from the supremacy of Christ, what we usually end up with is a self-made, self-reliant religion that determines to do the right thing for God. 
And once we've done that, we've completely missed everything the Apostle Paul prayed for, everything he's going for, everything God wants us to see in our church. And so that's why we started with such a a huge look at the supremacy of Jesus. And then as we moved from this statement of his supremacy into verses 21 through 23, uh, the Bible talks so much about how Jesus transforms people's lives. And, And that's what we've said from the outset of this series, that the book of Colossians is an invitation from God to us as his people to participate in how he is changing lives through the gospel. God is the one changing people's lives. He's radically transforming lives all around us, but he calls us as his people to join him in that work, to participate in that work through local churches. This is an encouraging call and a desperate prayer for us as a local church to participate in how God is changing lives. And so we talked in verse 21 about how this beautiful supreme Jesus um, took those of us who were once alienated, reading from verse 21, who were doing evil deeds, and he has now reconciled us because of his death on the cross to God. He's reconciled us to him. He has completely changed who we are so that he could present, the Bible says, present us as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus is amazing, and the reason Jesus being amazing matters to us is because that has changed our lives. And this becomes the basis upon which everything else in our text today is really written. From this great statement of how great Jesus is and how much that changes lives, now we enter a part of the book of Colossians for um, most of chapter 2 where he's going to now paint the difference between what a life built on Jesus looks like and what a life built on man-made self-effort looks like. These, These are two completely different ways of living life. And he's teaching us and calling us to a Jesus life. So what does that mean? That's what we're going to look at for the next couple of Sundays, starting this morning. And then finally, the book of Colossians is going to conclude with some very practical outworkings of a life that is built on Jesus for us as a church. So that's where we are as we kind of move down the the string of buttons, so to speak. Jesus is supreme. So what does it then look like to build your life on that fact instead of on anything else you could build your life on? Well, that brings us to our text this morning that we just read. The Apostle Paul in this passage uses himself as an example. Once again, he's talking to people who didn't know him personally. They certainly knew of him, but he's having a chance to speak directly to them through this letter. And so he's using himself as a role model of what a Jesus-following life looks like. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see three things that have direct impact on who we are and how we live today. First of all, we're going to see that followers of Jesus navigate their lives by the Bible. Secondly, followers of Jesus build their lives on the gospel. And thirdly, followers of Jesus commit their lives to growing God's church. That's what we see as we move through this text. Now, we're going to kind of move through it um, and bounce around a couple different places as we trace these themes that are all tightly woven together in our text this morning. But let's start with that first point. Followers of Jesus navigate their lives by the Bible. You notice all throughout this passage, um, words keep cropping up like wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Uh, Even the Apostle Paul doesn't always use those words as frequently in his writings as he does here. He's intentionally choosing some of these words. For example, uh, chapter 1, verse 25. 
He says, I become a minister according to the stewardship of God given to me. And here's, here's my stewardship to make the word of God fully known. He recognizes that his primary call is to be an explainer, an expositor is the big fancy word for it. Somebody who shows what God's word has said. You certainly teach the word of God and encourage people to read the word of God, but not just the idea that God's word would be read, that it would be understood. We've got to understand what God is saying. He continues these same themes, verse 28 He says, Jesus is the one we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. These are not just sort of random words he's throwing in. These are key specific trigger words, especially for a first century context. And lastly, just one more example, chapter 2, verse 3. He says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures, again, of wisdom and of knowledge. What's he getting at with all of this understanding and wisdom and knowing and knowledge stuff? Well, in the context that this was originally written, we're talking first century Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was in control politically, but it was the the Greek Empire, which was gone now politically, but that's what really established the cultural context. The Greek thought that still dominated the first century world that the Apostle Paul was writing into was influenced by guys whose names you've probably heard, uh, even if you don't consider yourself a big philosophy person. Uh, Names like Aristotle, and Plato, and Socrates. These were the great Greek philosophical teachers who had already lived and made their mark on the world by the time the book of Colossians was written. And so the Apostle Paul's writing into a first century Roman city, and like the general just culture, the general worldview, we might say, was that you want to pursue wisdom. And and the Greeks um, defined wisdom in certain ways. It was the whole idea of Greek philosophy. In fact, that very word itself, philosophy, if you just break it down, it means love of wisdom. Philosophy was just a, a, the Greek philosophy was a way to use the human mind to to penetrate the true nature of things, to understand the way the world really works, to see beyond just the physical reality that we can all touch and see and perceive the way the world really works. If you do that, so went Greek philosophy, you will live a more successful life because you have greater understanding. And so the Greek philosophers proposed ways to understand the world. And that that led to a culture of of valuing true knowledge, uh, valuing being able to see beyond what's right in front of your face and understand the way the world really works. In other words, we really are kind of talking worldview. That's a word I used just a second ago. It's kind of a modern word, but the idea is is as old as, as people are. Worldview is this idea that, you know, we all have a, we have a grid in our minds, that through which we just sort of interpret everything else around us. What is the basic set of ideas and core principles that we use to filter everything else around us? Whether you consider yourself a philosophical person or not, everybody has a worldview. These are ideas that we assume. And what the Bible is driving at here is, what is the, world, what is the worldview that I'm operating by? Let me not maybe assume it. Let me, let me think about it and call it out. And is it the right worldview? Because there's more than one out there and it matters which one we're using. It, it has always mattered at all points in time, but maybe it matters now even more than ever because we live in the information age. Never has so much information been so accessible to so many people at our fingertips. 
Right? We've got our wireless devices in our phone where if we have a question, we just immediately Google it and instantly we can have access to hundreds of sources of information almost anywhere we are to answer any question that we could possibly have. And in past generations, you either couldn't get that information or you'd have to go look it up in a manual or you'd have to go down to a library and check out a book. And if it was accessible, it took a lot more effort. There is so much information now that is so accessible to so many people on almost every subject you could imagine. It's unprecedented in human history. I was thinking about this a few years ago when we had an old dishwasher and the door, that little, I don't even know what you call it, that little flap on the inside of the dishwasher door that covers over the compartment where the detergent is, like the soap is, it has a spring loaded and the spring popped off. And I found it in the bottom of the dishwasher. I thought it was broken. It wasn't broken. It clearly popped off. And I thought, okay, I like to think of myself as an intelligent person. This is a dishwasher. It can't be that hard to fix, right? I'm going to put this spring back on so the door works right. And so I tried and tried and I just couldn't figure it out. The way you had to connect the spring to the little flap and then slide the flap on the hinges with the spring in the correct position so that it would actually function correctly. Like I could make two of those three things work, but I just couldn't get all three of them to work. I'm like, there's got to be a simple way to do this. But after playing with it for 20 or 30 minutes, I just couldn't figure it out. I thought, I wonder, I bet somebody's made a YouTube video out of this. And I got to admit, part of me is like, Ah, I mean like this exact spring, this exact door. Maybe I can find something like it. So just for kicks, I go to YouTube. I look up my exact model number of the exact dishwasher I had. I type all that into YouTube and I put like, you know, spring detergent door something. I can't remember what I put in there. And I just hit search just to see what would happen. I kid you not. Eight different videos just on the first page pop up from eight different people giving me step-by-step -step instructions about how to reattach this specific spring to the specific little flap to the specific door of this specific dishwasher. I'm like, who are these people? Who does this? But thank you that you did because I looked at one of the videos that showed me how to do it and I fixed my dishwasher door. Seriously, it is amazing how much information we have access to. Now the question becomes, how do you, how do you filter it to navigate life? Who do you decide whose YouTube videos to watch, which websites to read, which blogs and books to trust. How do you, how do you know? And, and maybe that's not really that important to question when it comes to putting a spring back on a dishwasher door, right? You just watch whichever video has got the clearest picture or camera focus the better or whatever. It probably doesn't matter that much. But, but that question, how do you filter all this information, becomes more important as the questions become more important. You know, when you start getting into medical stuff, I've got this strange abdominal pain. Is that nothing or is that something really serious? I don't know. So you get on the internet, you start doing research, right? Which is really dangerous because then you get all this information that could apply or could not apply. Are you going to ignore something or, or radically do something to yourself that may damage your health just by watching YouTube videos? Going to WebMD, reading blogs? Like at some point you realize, I should probably talk to an expert. I should go to a doctor who knows how to filter this information because I trust him or her? And what about the, the ultimate questions of life? Is God there? If so, what does he think of me? Is, what happens to me when I die? Is there anything that happens after death? How do you answer that question? Is there any, is there any meaning or purpose to life itself? Like, does it matter that I'm even here? And does, does that influence the choices that I make today? Do they matter? How do you answer that question? 
You see, these are questions we all have and we all assume answers to. Sometimes we think about them. Most of the time, we don't actively think about them, but they're always there in the background. And at some point, we've got to decide how we answer these questions. Well, there's a lot of different answers out there, just like there's a lot of YouTube videos to tell you how to fix your dishwasher. But here's the thing with worldviews. They, they don't all say the same thing. They can't all be right. They're contradictory. So, so how do I answer the biggest questions of life? What the Apostle Paul is talking about here for the Colossian church is he's telling them, look, there's this, this passionate pursuit of wisdom, understanding life. And he says, that's my prayer for you, that you would really get life because you would go to the author of life and listen to what he's saying. Not just come to church and read some Bible verses and then go home and live your life by Greek philosophy that doesn't reference God. That you would actually come to understand who God really is. That that would revolutionize your life. In verse 25, Chapter 1, verse 25, he says, I became a minister um, of uh, the church according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. He's talking about his life purpose. He's like, here's my ambition. Here's my mission. And that is to make the word of God fully known. He says, man, I, I don't even know you people. I haven't even met you, but I so desperately desire for you to understand what God is telling you in this book. That's what will change your life. And so that, that presupposes that, that God is speaking. That God has written something to us and for us. God is not silent, and yet his voice can get lost in a cacophony of other distractions and voices and worldviews. In a different letter, the Apostle Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. You see, the Jewish context of his day were like, I'll trust you and believe you and and take you uh, seriously if you can sort of authenticate it with some kind of supernatural sign. That's one way, that's one worldview. Another worldview is to pursue this sort of Greek philosophy thing we've been talking about. But he said, that's not, we don't go either one of those ways. Followers of Jesus preach Christ crucified. Why do we know that? Because that's what God tells us in his word. This is a call for followers of Jesus to navigate their lives by what God has said in the Bible. So brothers and sisters, what sources of wisdom do you tend to turn to when life gets hard? when life is stressful, when frustrations mount? Do you find yourself immediately running to the internet, social media, what my coolest friends and blogs will say? It's not wrong to read those things, but but where's my basic source of information? Or am I finding myself running to God and desperately saying, God, help me understand your view of this situation from your word. God, speak to me. How can you navigate your life by the Bible this week, like even in this period of quarantine. Followers of Jesus navigate their life by the Bible, which which actually leads us right into the second point, because when you navigate your life by the Bible, it puts out a clear beacon to, to navigate toward, and that clear beacon, as we've already read, is Christ himself. And so while we see that followers of Jesus navigate their lives by the Bible, we also see in this passage that followers of Jesus build their lives on the gospel. They build their lives on the gospel. One of the best-known phrases in this passage that we're looking at this morning, and one of my personal favorites, comes out of verse 27, chapter 1, verse 27. 
There the apostle says, to them, that is to the saints, to Christians, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, we'll come back to that in a second, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The ultimate like end, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate message is Christ in you. He says, that's your hope of glory. Man, if we catch nothing else as the rock-solid foundation of your worldview and your life, catch Christ crucified. Jews seek wisdom, uh, Jews seek signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. What does that mean? That means according to the Bible, our hope of future glory doesn't come from being Jewish, which would have been more of the Old Testament context, where I'm one of God's people, either by birth or because I've converted. It doesn't come from being Jewish or white or American or any other ethnicity or nationality or anything else. It doesn't come from being born in a Christian home or raised in church or any other place. Nor does the hope of future glory come from achieving our own dreams, setting our goals and reaching for them. It doesn't come from achieving the standards that our religious leaders explain to us. Nor does it come from relying on collective human wisdom and knowledge to figure out all of life's mysteries through philosophy, through science, through any other means that we might use. Now all of these can be good things. Following religious principles, setting goals and dreams, seeking to understand the way the world works through research, these are all good things. And yet, ultimately, the bottom line of what the Bible says is our hope for future glory doesn't come in achieving any level of knowledge through these things. It comes from one thing, having Christ in you, in me. You see, the Old Testament tells a jaw-dropping, breathtakingly beautiful story of God's salvation of God reaching to people who have rejected him and making a way for them to connect with him now and for all eternity. It's a beautiful story, but it's an incomplete story by design. It leaves a lot of loose ends, and and they're unresolved. In fact, the more the Old Testament goes on, the more the loose ends and their looseness, their untidiness, sort of gets emphasized. Like the season finale of of your favorite TV series, you know, it will often create a new tension within the final episode and then end the season with that new tension unresolved. Why? Because they want you to come back for the next season, right? You got to see how that gets resolved. And in some ways, that's kind of how the Old Testament works. It tells us so much about who God is, so much about what his intentions are, so much about what he's doing in the world. The Old Testament explains so much of what we need to know about God. But in the process of doing that, it explains some things that like, don't quite add up or it says some things are going to happen without really telling us how and then it just ends. Why? Because you got to come back for the next season. You got to move on to the New Testament where God then completes his revelation, his speaking to us, by resolving those loose ends in the person and work of Christ. Consider this. The Old Testament reveals God as a, a being who is perfectly just, which means like he's going re- to punish all sin, right? Because if, if you know that there's a wrongdoing and you're the judge and you let it go unpunished, that's not justice, right? That's being a bad judge. So God is a, a good judge. He's going to punish every single sin, not just other people's sins, but my sins. Not just the sins that really bother me, but like all sins. God is perfectly just. 
And at the same time, the Bible also says and insists that at the core of his being, he is, he's merciful. And that means that that, that leads him to forgive sin, to, to not punish the sin of, of sinners. And, and these themes get repeated over and over and over again. They get emphasized more and more and more. God will punish all sin, including the sin of his people, but God will make a way for the people, his people's sins to be forgiven. And both of those just continually get promised and emphasized to the place where the dissonance between them is almost deafening because the Old Testament never tells us how those two things can work. It just keeps insisting over and over again that they will. And you don't get the answer until you get to Jesus. Until we turn the pages of the New Testament to the first gospel and start reading about the life, death, and ministry of Jesus, God himself becoming a man who then willingly dies on the cross in our place for our sins so that perfect justice is satisfied. Every sin is justly punished and paid for. But the great twist in the story is that I don't pay for all of my sins. Jesus paid for them for me on my behalf. And in fact, his sacrifice was so amazing, he paid not just for my sins, but also for yours and everybody else's. He paid for all the sins of the world. It is simply impossible to out-sin the grace of God in Christ. And so simultaneously we see that, that no sin goes unpunished, but God is also unspeakably, unspeakably merciful because I don't have to go to the hell that I deserve. Jesus Christ took that death on for me when he left heaven, took on human flesh, and went to the cross for your sin and my sin. God perfectly just, perfectly merciful because God himself steps in to be the sacrifice and pay the penalty. Only God could be that amazing. That's the message of the Bible. That's the, that's the worldview. That's the point that God is trying to tell us. This is what life is about. This is where this whole train of human history is heading. And this is important because that's information that's true about Jesus. But just like the passage we saw last Sunday, information that's true about Jesus has direct impact on us. This becomes a whole new basis upon which to build my life and your life. It's a totally different foundation for life. In fact, the Apostle Paul moves into that seamlessly. We just read from verse 27 of chapter 1. Look at verse 28. Christ in you, the hope of glory, it is him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that, look at this, we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, now stop the ship right there and think about that. The Apostle Paul seems to be laboring under the assumption that if people just get Jesus really right, they have everything they need to be what God wants them to be, to be successful in life, to attain the hope of glory now and for all eternity. Like he says, I, I'm not presenting you my 12-step program. I'm not presenting you my detailed regimen for your life. He says, I present Christ. So I, I warn everybody and I teach everybody, but I present Christ and if you've got Christ, then I'm confident I will present you as a mature person. Christ's life, death, and resurrection become the basis for me to build my life on, and it completely changes how we live. Here's, here's one example of how I think this works. This plays out hundreds of ways. Here's just one example. 
Satan, God's opponent in the Bible, is often referred to as, as our accuser, the accuser of the saints. One of the things he does, many of us have experienced this personally, like we know what our failings are, and one really effective tactic for Satan to use against Christians is to accuse us of our own sins and our failings, to remind us of just how far short we fall, how much we've failed, how many bad things we've done, because deep down inside, even if we know in our heads it's not true, he can be very successful at getting us to believe that, you know, God may love you because he's a super merciful guy, but man, you're stretching the limits of mercy. You know what I'm saying, right? I mean, yeah, he probably loves you, but like that's total charity on his part. He probably doesn't love you as much as he loves her because she's awesome and you're not, all right? And for some of us, that kind of language has a real power over our lives. And for others, we have the opposite problem. That kind of language has no power over our lives, and we're super confident in our relationship with God because we think we're really pretty good people. Either way, I can build my life on my own performance, or I can build it on Jesus. And here's, here's one example of how that plays out. If I'm building my life on my performance, Satan's accusations can be very, very powerful. Because when he comes in and he reminds us of how we don't measure up, the biggest problem is we know he's ultimately right. He's ultimately right. Satan is a liar. That's another thing the Bible says very clearly about him. But most good lies contain at least a a, a kernel of truth in them. And so as he tells me God doesn't love me, which is a lie, it's based on a kernel of truth. You don't measure up. That's true. I don't measure up. And so for many of us, that, that power just beats us down and convinces us that maybe God doesn't really love us. And we're constantly then striving to, to live up to God's love for us. And we're pursuing God in a self-reliant way, whether we even realize it or not. But you know what? To build my life on Jesus means there's a tremendous power in acknowledging the truth of what Satan is saying when I have the freedom to acknowledge it because my life isn't built on my performance. It's built on Christ's performance. Like a a really silly example of this um, was a a life lesson I learned when I was a really little kid. I might have been first grade. I was maybe six, seven years old at the most, young guy. And I'll never forget, I had a friend that was calling me a name. I don't remember what the name was. It might have been Four Eyes or something like that because I wore glasses as a kid. I don't think that was it, but it was something like that. It wasn't really bad, but he just started teasing me. And he was a friend, but he was teasing me. And it just, for whatever reason, like it got my goat. It made me angry. And so I'm like, stop calling me that. And I'm just like blowing up at him, which of course made him totally stop, right? No, I mean, that just eggs him on. He thought that was even more funny. So every now and then, he'd just kind of whisper that name to me. And I, stop it, stop it. He just thought that was a lot of fun. And I was really irritated. I went home, and my mom could tell I was upset. What happened? And so I told her, oh, Kevin's calling me whatever it was she's calling me, and I really don't like it. To my mom's credit, I don't remember her laughing in my face, um, but I'm sure she probably had to stifle that as her sweet little innocent and fairly naive six-year-old son was starting to figure some things out about life, right? And I re- this is, I think, why I even remember the scene. Most of the details are clouded, but it was one of these aha moments when my mom sort of suggested to me, you know, maybe the way you're responding to him is encouraging him to do it even more. And I'm like, huh? I mean, like, it's, just thought it never even occurred to me. It never even dawned on me that I could actually be contributing to the problem. She's like, you know, if maybe you just don't get so upset, he'll decide that it's not worth really teasing you anymore. And part of me is like, no, that can't be true. I mean, like, that's too easy, right? But whatever. I'm a little kid, and my mom told me, I'm like, I'm going to go test this theory, right? Literally, the next day I go to school, and I remember we're in line for something, recess or whatever, and my friend Kevin comes up, and he calls me that name again. And I just looked at him and smiled and said, yep, that's my name. Don't wear it out. 
And he sort of looked at me, and he laughed, and he walked away. And he never called me that name again. <laughs> and I remember like a day later, two days later, I'm, I noticed the change in his behavior. I'm like, oh, amazing. Mom was right. Like, wow, you know. She knew something about life I didn't know. I'm six years old. I thought I'd pretty much figured it out by now, you know. But the point is simply this. Like, my acceptance of of what he was doing, of the name he was calling me, just sort of disarmed the power of his taunting. I mean, it just, it just deflated the whole thing for him. It took all the fun out of it for him. So he's like, yeah, okay, never mind. I'm not going to do that anymore. And, and that's obviously a silly example, but it illustrates an important point. When Satan accuses, like, you're not good enough, you fail, you don't measure up, there's actually great power in simply saying, yep, I know. Seriously, tell me, tell me something I don't know. You took all the time in the world to tell me that, right? I mean, tell me something I don't know. Gosh, the very first page of the Bible tells me I don't measure up, and as if I needed confirmation, I just have to look back at my life and realize there's a million ways in which I sin. And please don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be so flippant that, that we, you know, we sort of like just tell Satan to go jump at a lake or something like that. I'm just trying to illustrate the idea that there's actually a great power in saying, you're right. Of course. I know that. The Bible already told me that. So why does that taunt then have power over me? Why does that accusation have power to beat me down? It only has power to beat me down if I'm actually building my life on my performance. Because then my failure to measure up is like a constant just weight that's hanging on my shoulders. But you see, if my life is built on Christ's acceptance of me, suddenly it doesn't matter that I don't measure up. I know I don't measure up. I have the ability to respond to Satan and say, you're absolutely right. Tell me something I don't know. But let me tell you something else. Christ's grace has reached for me and pulled me from the pit and given me a hope and a future because of who he is. And there's no accusation you can throw at me that's going to change the fact that he came and died. That just won't go away. So what do you have to say that can keep me down? It just all goes away. The whole thing just evaporates. And when we get on the performance treadmill, the personal performance treadmill, where we're constantly trying to live up to what God says and straining and sweating and never really getting there, it's almost like pressing a knife into Satan's palm and then just presenting our back to him and saying, go ahead, slide it in there. Just keep stabbing me in the back because I know I can't ever knock that knife out of your hand. Not if the knife is my performance. But when we get off of our performance and start to base our personal identity on Christ's performance, that knife just like immediately turns to paper mache. You can in the back all you want. You don't even feel it. It just totally loses all of its power. That's what it means to build our identity, to build our life on the gospel, not on our performance or on following somebody's system. How does the Apostle Paul do this? He says he warns everyone and teaches everyone that is, we're, we're instructing from God's word and then warning is really to admonish. He's just saying like, I, I didn't encourage you to put into practice what you know. Build your life on the gospel, not on a counterfeit. Preaching aims to showcase the wisdom, not of the preacher, but of God in Christ as revealed in the Bible. We teach and then we urge application. The result, maturity in Christ. Brothers and sisters, how can you build your life on Christ this week? even in this time of quarantine, to let the love of God in Christ in your life define your identity and your reality and then live that out. Followers of Jesus navigate their lives with the Bible. They build their lives on the gospel. And there's one more thing. 
followers of Jesus also commit their lives to building Christ's church. And at first, that may seem like a completely different subject, but it fits in beautifully with what is being said here. You see, we already saw that there's a story in the Bible that God is telling about what life means, about what he's up to. Christians participate in that world-redeeming mission, God rescuing sinners for himself for all eternity. Because his mission is our mission, and his mission is to grow his church. That means to grow it in in breadth, the more people get added to the church, new people find eternal life in Christ, and also grow it in depth. We become increasingly mature as Christians, as he just talked about. He talks about this in the very first verse, chapter 1, verse 24. I could have sort of skipped over that, and I'm going to go back to it now, where he says something a little bit interesting. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And we need to just acknowledge that that is a very strange phrase. What does it mean? Is there something lacking in Christ's afflictions? Just like Jesus' suffering somehow not enough or whatever? And... Um, honestly, it's a really, really strange verse that, that has spawned thousands of pages of theological exploration for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's one of these odd things. In fact, the word that the Apostle Paul uses there when he says, I fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction is a phrase that doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. So like you can't even go and say, how is that word used in other passages of Scripture? Because it never is. And so we're just kind of left based on the context to try to figure out what did he exactly mean by that? And there's lots of different ideas. Um, It's a little bit obscure. Certainly we know what he did not mean. He did not mean that there was anything lacking in Jesus' work of redemption. He's not talking about salvation here because the whole point of this entire book is we preach Christ and him crucified, right? When Christ said it is finished on the cross, it was finished. He suffered for our sins, and that is enough. You cannot outsin the work of Christ on the cross. So what does he mean? Well, I think, um, don't bet your retirement on this, but I think what he's driving at there is the idea of, of the suffering that Christians go through when they are following Christ and participating in his work in the world. Like, in other words, God knows that that the gospel is going to go as far as it's going to go and only he knows when that's going to end and he's going to say enough is enough and usher in eternity. So the gospel is going to accomplish a certain amount. It's going to go a certain distance, so to speak. And and one of the things the Bible teaches is that um, his people will have to suffer in some ways to get it there. Every time we pick up the gospel and live a Jesus life, there are different kinds of costs to pay, but there's always a cost to pay, and God is very clear about this. And I think what the Apostle Paul is doing is connecting these ideas. The gospel spreads through the suffering of God's people, and so the gospel is going to go a certain distance, and that means there's going to be a certain amount of suffering by the time that, of, that God's people have to go through by the time it's all said and done. Not only God knows how much that is, but I think the point is the Apostle Paul says, I'm suffering as I preach the gospel. By the way, he's writing Colossians from prison. So he's been arrested. He's been falsely accused. He's been beaten. He's been mistreated. He's suffering in some very specific ways. And he says, I'm encouraged because I know that all of my sufferings is just one more drop of suffering in the total bucket of how much God's people are going to suffer for God's kingdom plan to be accomplished. I think that's the kind of thing he's driving at. Whatever he meant exactly by that phrase, my suffering makes up what is lacking, the point he's making is very clear, and it comes at the end of verse 24 and verse 25. Um, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, plural, to make the word of God fully known. You know what Paul is saying? I have devoted my life to serve Jesus Christ bride. 
the church. That's the calling God has given to me, and I carry it out. And furthermore, down in uh, verse 29, his dedication becomes a model. He says, this is what I toil for. I struggle with all of God's energy that powerfully works within me. It's not a self-reliant thing. It's the Holy Spirit in me. But I've devoted my life to seeing people become mature in Christ because I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and all those at Laodicea, those who haven't even seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, and come to understand the full beauty and wisdom of Jesus. His dedication was to the growth of churches everywhere, not just people he knew personally, but actually even other Christians like those in Colossae whom he didn't know. He was for the church, which shows how mission-driven he was because his life was about the spread of the gospel through local churches. Why? Why the church? Why does local churches figure so prominently in this? It's what's motivating Paul to write this letter to a church he doesn't even know, because Paul knows that the local church is how God accomplishes his purpose of redeeming people. You see, the gospel doesn't operate in a vacuum. The mission of God is not about um, God sort of saving individuals and then, you know, churches are kind of incidental to God's plan. Eventually, there's a bunch of Christians running around and they kind of need a place for potlucks. So, hey, let's create this thing called church so they can get together and share food, right? I mean, that's not what church is all about. Like, church is incidental to individual salvation. The, The picture the Bible paints is actually very different. The church is what Christ is building in the world. And the church is its members, groups of Christians who commit to one another to live out the gospel in local communities. From the book of Acts on all the way throughout history, wherever the gospel goes, local churches are the outcome. They are the result, and they are the focus of the ministry of people like the Apostle Paul. Jesus is building his church. He's passionate about his church. He calls it his bride, his body. The love I feel for my bride, the care and concern I have for what happens in my own body, those are ideas I can relate to, and those are only small, diluted hints and shadows of the love and dedication Jesus has to to advancing his kingdom through the ministry of local churches like this one, like Harvest. People aren't saved as individuals and the churches spring up as an afterthought. Rather, individuals are saved into Christ's body, which is expressed in a local church. Groups of individuals whom he has saved by his grace, who commit to love one another, serve one another, learn God's word together, admonish one another, and grow into maturity in Christ with one another. You see, you start to, as you grow as a Christian, you start to think about the local church differently than maybe you did before. We start to see a local church less as an organization that provides warm relationships and good things for me, although it certainly does that but we start to see it more like the bride of Christ, more like the beauty of what God is doing in the world. And so even at times when life in a local church is less than glamorous, the reality of a local church is beautiful. Just like in a healthy marriage, a husband and a wife can sometimes really get on one another's nerves, but they stay committed because they understand at even the worst points, the reality of their marriage is a beautiful and lifelong and important thing. And so it starts to affect how you, how you see the church. It also starts to understand how you interact, to, to, to affect how you interact with the church. And that's what I think that this passage is driving here. The Apostle Paul is such a model of saying, I'm dedicated to the church because that's what my God is doing. That's his bride. And so 
followers of God commit to the local church formally and functionally because we realize that if I'm a Christian, I need to be part of a local church. That's what God is doing in the world. That, that's what our formal membership process is all about here at Harvest. You can think of it this way. It's basically the way that we say, everybody else in the church, hey, I'm one of us. I'm in. I'm in. I'm, 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 I believe what we all believe here. I'm pursuing the same Jesus we're pursuing here, so let's pursue him together. I'm for you. You're now for me. We can count on one another, so let's do this Jesus thing together. At its heart, that's what we hope and pray every member of this church that that experience, their experience is. And by the way, even in this time of quarantine, we're interested in seeing how we can continue to encourage people uh, to explore membership at Harvest. If you're interested in that, send us an email, info at harvestcc.org. Just write membership in the subject line and we'll get back to you because we want to put a class together that could possibly meet in person but also have an online option. We'll see about the details. But we want to encourage Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus and this is your church home, join the church because church matters. If this is not your church home, find another one or we'll help you find another one. But you know what? It's not just the formal joining. It's the functional joining. That's where the rubber meets the road. It's not just signing on as a member. It's living membership, investing in people, taking relational risks, learning, studying, praying, and serving together when it's inconvenient. You know, it could be so easy to feel useless and trapped in our current COVID-19 isolation. But we can still commit to Jesus' church here at Harvest. Maybe one way is what Isaiah mentioned earlier. If you're not connected to one of our small groups already, you can click that Life Groups link and say, hey, I'm interested in getting connected. Now, maybe there's reasons you don't want to. Maybe it's like, that's inconvenient. Maybe it's I'm, I'm a little um, socially nervous. I'm not sure about being connected with people I don't know or whatever. There might be some reason that is holding you back. I would encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus and this is your home church, pursue people. That's one way to do it. If you're a little hesitant to click that link and you want to talk to somebody first, give us a call. We'll talk to you personally. We'll get you connected with good people who don't bite, I promise. But the important thing is that we're reaching and we're pursuing to build relationships with one another. Why? Not just because I feel like it right now. Sometimes I really do feel like it. Sometimes I don't. I pursue because the church is important. That's what my Jesus is doing in this world. And that's what my life is all about. Friends, how could you commit to the growth of Jesus' church this week? even in our time of isolation. In this passage, the Apostle Paul gives us such a model of following God. Followers of God navigate their lives by the Bible. They build their lives in the gospel and they commit their lives to building Jesus' church. That leads to a completely different way of life when Jesus is most supreme. And that's what we're going to sing right now. As, as we wrap this up, I want to encourage you to sing with us, Here in the Power of Christ I Stand. Because as a church, that's what we have to hold on to. We preach Christ and Him crucified. And that is the basis of an entirely different way of living, individually and together. Let's live that out this week.